Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Helena Fong. She's the Head of Sustainable Investment, APAC at FTSE Russell. In this episode, we drill into some of the thornier issues that come from ESG and sustainability investing and how the ESG landscape has changed since the GFC in 2008. We cover the evolution from shareholder primacy to stakeholder primacy and the material factors that can add value and destroy value and how this lines up with the work of Porter's Five Forces and fundamental analysis. We also touch on fiduciary duty and the performance implications that come from the integration of ESG. We discuss the social and governance factors, such as employee contracts and voting rights that have become increasingly uh, prominent given the dominance of technology firms in portfolios and indices. Finally, we wrap up the conversation by talking about the role of stock exchanges in driving positive ESG change. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So Helena, you mentioned that you've been in sustainability and ESG since 2008. A lot's happened in markets since then, and obviously a lot's happened in the ESG sustainability world. Can you give maybe a bit of context around what you've seen that's changed specifically in the sustainability and stewardship since then? Sure. Well, as you say, Alex, I mean, I started working in this area uh, just after or around the time of the GFC, you know, and that was really uh, very significant in the way that investors approach not only their investments, but also from an, from an ownership perspective, the way that they interacted with invest companies in their portfolios, but also the way that they looked at, at relationships with managers overall. So really holding managers to account and making sure that there was a stewardship component that was very strong within the different funds that they were invested in. So I think what we've seen is really a very in- increased and strengthened dialogue, uh, not only with companies, but also with, uh, with the managers of funds around making sure that they are really sort of holding to account the companies and their portfolios and the management, and also, uh, you know, looking very much at the material issues that are going to make a difference to companies, those that both have uh, the potential to destroy value, but also, and I think this is a maybe a more recent shift, uh, you know, where companies should be responding to opportunities that are developing in the market. And that's particularly around environmental solutions. And I would say also, you know, we've seen climate change really come to the fore as a very key issue. Uh, in the last couple of years. And, you know, with the pandemic this year, that's placed another really interesting slant on the issues that are becoming most important and material to investors. Another shift that I would also note is this uh, sort of move away from, from shareholder primacy, as it's termed, or rather sort of, you know, as shareholders as, as being, uh, let's say, you know, the most important factor in the equation and therefore those sort of quarterly return elements being uh, uh, a a way of measuring uh, company performance and more towards the the broader stakeholder footprint and how companies are really impacting not just shareholders, but really, uh, you know, across the broad base of of, uh, uh, communities, customers, as well as their investors. So I think it's really a great broadening out and and an increased and enhanced awareness of many of the issues that relate to, to ESG. But also, I think companies are just being held that much more to account by regulators and by their investors in terms of their impact in the societies that they operate in and their ability to also uh, 
provoke and, and to inspire the change that's really going to be necessary uh, within different populations and different jurisdictions in, in to, towards many of the solutions that we're going to need uh, with regard to with regard to sort of longer term and broader sustainability issues. I think it's come away from that very kind of closed dialogue between investors and companies, and we're really much more aware of the impact that companies can have negatively, but also I think on the positive side as well. You mentioned the transition from shareholder primacy to stakeholder um, management, I guess, is, is a key piece or, sh- or stakeholder primacy for everyone, basically. How is that any different to what we may have, we may have been learning at university around Porter's Fied Forces and fundamental analysis? You know, it, it seems as though this is just a rebranding of, of ESG uh, alongside shareholder primacy, but for shareholders to do well, all the stakeholders need to do well. And so I, I wonder how that, you know, is there a difference or is it just a rebranding? You know, I think that's a really interesting question. And when you mentioned Porter's Five Forces and that sort of framework for looking at um, at how companies operate and, and their sort of, uh, you, you know, com- competitive positioning, um, I wouldn't be, you know, I think it's a little bit cynical to kind of think of this as a, as a rebranding, uh, although in some cases, obviously, uh, that you know, it, it could simply be a, more of a, a sort of a, a front towards uh, towards consumers and towards investors. I would say that it's more that the landscape of what matters when you do that analysis piece uh, has shifted. So it's you know, in order to be uh, to be competitive, in order to to go with your customers and to win that um, thread of substitute products or or supplier piece. It's really about knowing that the whole landscape of sort of the regulatory front, the environmental piece is shifting and that companies really have to respond to that if they're going to keep up in the new order. So so if you think about the regulation that's likely to come in around things like carbon pricing, if you want to stay competitive as a company uh, and if you want to win the trust of your employees and your your customer base, then you're going to have to make significant changes to the operating models uh, of companies, you know, I think across many of the very sort of traditional uh, sectors, that's going to be going to be relevant. And, and interestingly, we've seen an escalation in that, I would say, this year with the pandemic, uh, you know, with different sectors coming to the fore. And that, of course, you know, that shift in the way that we work, the way that we live and, and we operate, then poses different challenges. I think we're going to have a, a different set of risks that are going to need to be dealt with. But I think, it, you know, it's not that the model has changed specifically. It's more that probably the factors that you take into account in that analytical piece and in knowing what's going to help companies to succeed, uh, I would say, has shifted. You know, and to be fair, Alex, I think that's the way that it should be. And this is another evolution, really, in the capital markets. Companies need to respond to that and investors are going to be taking note, I think, of what that is going to look like in terms of the criteria for success as we see a lot of evolution, not only in the markets, but also in the understanding and the significance of many of the issues that come under that heading of ESG. So what you've you've touched on a little bit there is almost two different approaches. You've got the bottom-up approach almost from customers driving ESG, and then you've got a regulatory top-down approach. Is is that a fair assumption of, of what you're describing? Well, I think that's right. I mean, you know, one thing I would I would say, and obviously I'm I'm based here in, in Hong Kong, and and I think the landscape is different across different regions, right? So, you know, if you look at the development of ESG and sustainable investing in maybe be some of the mature markets, and I would say uh, Australia is one of those markets. But if you look into Europe, uh, and I think also to the US and the history of environmental, social, and governance uh, as a driver for investments 
uh, within those more mature markets, uh, you do see it really a bottom-up uh, propulsion, I would say, around uh, investors considering many of the issues that are relevant here. You know, and even if I, I think if you go back to the early days of ethical investing in the U.S. and you look at sort of the divestment from uh, from tobacco or from from uh, companies that were in, involved with apartheid in South Africa, you know, I think that's that has made a huge difference. Then it also uh, has its impact as well on the way that governments and regulators think about some of these issues. Now, the other piece to that is, is the top-down element. And sitting as I do in Asia, I've seen a lot of activity uh, this year in particular around responding to, I think, some of the changes that investors want to see on a global basis, but also a recognition that many of the issues that we're talking about, and you know, we've mentioned climate change, I think, as being uh, maybe one of the most material from a financial standpoint, but also, I think, one, maybe one of the most exigent issues um, uh, globally. Uh, you know, I think the recognition that these are, are not only important, uh, you know, for investors, but also for the, the range of stakeholders, as we said before, including for consumers, uh, is, is really kind of driving changes in the way that regulators are, are approaching the whole uh, ecosystem of ESG investing and kind of making provision and making allowance for that. And, and interestingly, I think this is where it kind of syncs up on a global basis. If you think about that consumer, that stakeholder base and the beneficiaries that you have in, in perhaps in some of the more mature markets, uh, you know, I, I think the whole ethos that, that's been sort of brought to bear by the, the dialogue that we've had in those markets has really kind of made an impact on a global basis. And it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, overflowed, if you like, into, into what we're seeing in some of the, uh, the Asian markets or those markets that, you know, maybe have a little bit more uh, scope to, to catch up uh, to, to the level where ESG is, is more universally developed. There's been a bit of tension that's come out around some of the stewardship ESG conversation alongside the fiduciary duty piece. I'm curious around, obviously, in Australia, we've we've seen some tension that, that's come out in the US. Likewise, what are you seeing in Asia around fiduciary duty and and you know integrating ESG into portfolios? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question, actually. And that fiduciary duty piece has been so important in making the case for ESG investing, and particularly if you look at, uh, you know, I'm very familiar with the UK. It's my home market, for example. I mean, that fiduciary uh, requirement to consider. The broad range of, of what are you know termed uh, you know non-financial or non-traditional risk, let's say, uh, and to to consider uh, material ESG risks in the investment analysis. That's been really uh, you know very important in driving forward sustainable investing because obviously at the end of the day, uh, the core remit is for uh, for pension funds to to be able to meet their liabilities and and to to pay to pay out to their to their uh, beneficiary base. So I think that piece, uh, you know, has been very important. Obviously, there's a difference in sort of the, the time frame and the horizon that long-term investors who are committed to ESG uh, look at this over. So that, you know, I mean, that's another thing is sort of how do you, how do you then gauge that, that time horizon? But I think that fiduciary duty piece that you mentioned has been very important in those, in those core markets. Now, how does that translate to Asia is a, is a very interesting question. So one thing that I will say is that a lot of the discussions that we have here around uh, ESG investing in the portfolio with, invest, with, with investors, whether they're institutional investors or, or more sort of on the retail side, is, is really that sort of core piece around how does this impact uh, returns. And if you look at different markets here, I think the development of the understanding of ESG and how it plays into portfolio management 
and the impact that it's going to have in terms of things like tracking error or performance against a benchmark uh, is extremely important to a lot of investors here. Now, again, it goes to that kind of long-term long-term piece around how you gauge uh, returns over a period of time. But I think, you know, there isn't perhaps such a, a developed concept of that, uh, that sort of fiduciary duty as it relates to, to ESG. You know, I'm, I think and what I hope we'll see over a period of time is that, is that the confluence between ESG investing and returns becomes much more, uh, I would say, sort of pronounced and, and the recognition uh, that, that the two approaches really sit uh, alongside each other and that ESG investing is, is just an extension in many ways of traditional uh, risk management. Um, you know, hopefully that is what's going to help to, to drive forward uh, ESG in some of these markets. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's really, we're really kind of at an inflection point with the understanding of fiduciary duty and ESG uh, in Asia. Let's let's dig a little bit deeper around some of the performance issues. You mentioned earlier that we're moving away from some of the quarterly return performance metrics and so forth. I think that's going to be a real challenge to, to move past that. And how do you actually get institutional investors to look truly long-term? Many of them will say that they're investing for 20 years, but paranoid about returns on a quarterly basis or a yearly basis. How do you then make sure that they can actually see ESG or sustainability more broadly as a true long-term allocation? Yeah. Well, I suppose the other the other part of all of this is not only about the risk management piece that I mentioned, but it's also really about looking to the long term um, and those companies that are going to be instrumental in developing many of the sort of the products and services that we're going to require in the transition to a low carbon economy, for example. Now, you know, I think what's incumbent on investors, and I think if you look at frameworks like TCFD, for example, is really to look for those companies that are, are implementing ESG in a very deep way within their strategies and within the governance of the business itself. And I do think that actually, uh, you know, that that's happening, uh, I would say, more significantly than we've maybe seen in the past, where, where the ESG expert has kind of been very separate from the the investment side. So I think that longer term piece and really looking at how companies are managing the governance of ESG uh, within, within the firms and at the board level is going to help to drive that longer term lens. And going back to your question before also about the regulatory piece, I mean, we've seen a number of countries come out this year, including Hong Kong, where I'm sitting, with, uh, with net zero pledges by 2050. Now, in order to achieve that, you're going to need to have that very virtuous cycle of investors, companies, and regulators moving together in sync. So I think as we move away from simply ESG, from ESG being simply a sort of a, a, a risk management tool towards uh, um, you know, un- uncovering the companies that are going to help to, to provide the solutions that we need for sort of the longer term environmental and social goals that we, and objectives that we have. Uh, you, you know, that that sort of uncovering those companies that are moving towards that and, and really factoring that into their business strategies, I think is going to help to identify uh, maybe a shift in the investment attitude. Um, hopefully, I'm not being too optimistic about that, but I think it is that that longer term. And also, there's, there's a whole piece around uh, ESG as a potential driver um, of returns. You know, so I think also that discovering those companies earlier on and taking a longer term lens, I think this is going to be a really interesting uh, piece that relates very much to what companies are doing on the ESG side. 
it's actually quite fascinating when you talk about the the evolution away from sort of risk mitigation where i think esg started off with with negative screening particularly to now allocating more specifically to exposures that capture some of the changing uh economic drivers around environmental change for example like renewable energy different types of businesses that are popping up that are you know, without having to own things, you've got more of these giga to- gig style economy businesses that are popping up that is literally capturing ESG style um, factors. You know, but is that a little bit different? As as you start to dr- dig into being low carbon, you end up making more allocations to particular thematics. You're, you're mo- moving more to thematics rather than risk mitigation. Now it's slightly different. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's two different ways of looking at this. So you can either look at companies within a sector. So obviously, companies within a certain industry are going to be impacted by the same kind of uh, issues. So you can look at companies on that sort of industry sectorial basis and then rank them against peers and understand, well, firstly, you've got to look at the issues that are material to that sector. And well, to the company in particular, but but you tend to find that it's the same issues that that impact companies across a particular industry. So you can identify what are the the issues that are most material to this particular sector. And then within that, rather than necessarily looking across the industry, you can also identify which companies are maybe dealing with some of those in a, in a more profound way or, or in, a, in a more impactful way. Um, so I think that's that's one way of, of looking at this. You know, the, you've got a concentration of, of particular sectors or companies operating in, in particular areas within within ESG funds. So, so depending on I think the you know, the investment thesis or the approach that you take, uh, there is a way of looking at which companies are handling specific and relevant issues uh, in a more meaningful way. Now, you're correct that if you are to take a, maybe a, a low-carbon lens, you're going to wind up with uh, you know, screening out particular or, or underweighting companies in a particular sector. Um, but it's really, I think, about looking at which companies are doing uh, better at managing some of the risks that are most meaningful. And if you look at maybe an initiative that we're very involved with at FTSE Russell, such as the Transitions Pathway Initiative, which really seeks to identify uh, we look at the top 300 or, or about 300 uh, heaviest emitting or most carbon intensive companies and see how they are really managing the risk uh, within their within their uh, the governance and the strategy piece of, of the business. Um, you know, I think that's when you can really start to kind of look at which companies are most impacted by specific specific issues and then which ones are really taking the steps that, that are necessary to, uh, you know, to mitigate those risks, but also to help them to propel them forward so that they are making the contribution that's going to be necessary for them to uh, to survive and thrive in a, in a low-carbon um, environment. So I think there are a couple of different ways that you can look at that. Now, going back to your question about specific types of companies, I mean, what's interesting here is that you then find that there are, are other issues that come into the into the fore. So even if you're looking at uh, a low-carbon or, or a, a sort of a, a climate-type framework, You've still got to be very mindful of the issues that uh, that the sorts of companies that you might wind up with um, in in that kind of framework are going to have. So it's not simply about uh, looking at um, looking from a, from a, an environmental lens, but also thinking more about the social piece. And I think we've seen that really come to the fore uh, this year as as well. In particular, I mean, you mentioned the gig economy, so there are obviously issues that are inherent in that. Uh, that we may be more signif- more mindful of this year. It's obviously been a very difficult year for a lot of a lot of uh, um, you know employees or uh, 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 beneficiaries. So you know I think 
I think really it's about kind of looking more broadly uh, at the range of different issues that impact companies. Can I touch on another issue around returns? You know, we, we talked about risk mitigation. There's been a lot of talk around ESG and sustainability providing additional return or alpha. Now, I, I'm curious to get your thoughts around that ability, um, particularly as more and more institutional and asset owners are moving to this space. Does that alpha generation start to degrade over time, you know, or, or what are we actually capturing? Mm. Yeah, I think that in itself is a really interesting question. If you look at uh, the impact that ESG has had on asset allocation and the sort of the flows to particular companies or, or, or as you said previously, to particular sectors. Um, I mean, you know, you're right that I, I suppose at some point that becomes kind of a crowded trade, doesn't it? Right. So, um, uh, you know, there is there is that piece. But I think ultimately, in terms of the question over alpha and ESG, there's, there's sort of two ways that you can look at this question. So, I mean, firstly, as we said, bearing in mind the fiduciary duty of, uh, of investors, certainly institutional and uh, investors and asset owners to maximize return over over the longer time, maximize returns over the over a longer time frame. You know, I think that that piece doesn't go away, and therefore, obviously, allocating to companies that are, uh, are going to um, you know, enable them to achieve those performance goals is important. Now, whether ESG is going to contribute to that or not is really going to come down to the individual company level. Um, but I think uh, I think the, the research so far uh, and the, the piece that I think most investors would would go with is that ESG is is at least um, uh, uh, has at least a neutral effect, if not a positive effect on portfolio returns. So I think that's probably the starting point. I think there is a very strong appetite for seeing how ESG can help to uncover alpha in portfolios and, and, and at the company level. So I think there's really that appetite for understanding how companies are gonna position themselves with regards to that opportunity set um, around ESG and looking for those companies that are better positioned. Um, so I think that the appetite is, is there for alpha to be uh, a key factor and sort of considering the broader range of issues in making investment decisions. And that the research substantiates that certainly, uh, you know, ESG is not a negative detractor from performance. So I think we start from that point and then understand that, you know, as, as the global landscape shifts, as, as regulation shifts, and we need to, uh, you know, find the, the solutions that are going to help countries to meet their, their NDCs, then clearly, you know, those companies that are better positioned should be able to, to outperform over the longer run. So I think I would probably put it uh, in, in that lens. I mean, there is no one-size-fits-all um, solution here. I'll ask a bit of a tricky question, and, and that is that some of the, the oil and mining stocks have done quite poorly, but that's also been mm. due to a change in the technology that's coming forward. We've seen almost a topping in, in economic growth. Is, is some of the benefits that have come to ESG and excluding some of these businesses also just been capturing a trend that was ongoing for for the last 20, 30 years? Um, you know, with some of these companies that have been withdrawn from, from portfolios, you know, and being climate aware is also just because there are new technologies coming out that are more efficient in their ability to deliver energy. Well, I mean, I'm not sure if that's a question or a statement, but I mean, that's certainly been very visible this year. So, you know, you've had the confluence of an oil route, but also, I think, um, a yeah, decrease in the price of renewables, which has given a lot more emphasis on companies that are able to provide those solutions. Now, is that just a culmination of 20 years of, of sort of 
R&D and renewable energy. I mean, yes, potentially I would say that it is. I think we have uh, certainly better solutions now that can that can you know take us towards more of those sort of low carbon and, and net zero goals. Um, you know how this plays out in the in this. I would say in the probably in the more medium term uh, remains to be seen. But certainly, you know, all of the stars I think are really aligned here for uh, for for sort of for for the technology piece that we need in order to meet those solutions. So. Um, you know, you've, you've kind of got the whole sort of political and global landscape, plus the investment uh, and the asset prices, uh, plus the development of the technologies. And they're all really shifting in the right direction. I mean, I think that this year in particular, it's been really interesting to see the number of companies in particular sectors, or certainly in those sectors that have a key role to play here, uh, come out with uh, their strategies and, the, and their goals to support that. Uh, that sort of low carbon uh, net zero future. Now, again, you know, we're going to need to see whether or not those companies are able to transform themselves into energy companies uh, or, you know, how, how that's going to impact the asset mix within those sectors. But look, I mean, I think what you've said is completely true, that everything is kind of shifting in the right direction. And that it's really the combination of these factors that's going to make the difference uh, to some of these sectors and the way that they uh, strategize the business going forward. And, and that obviously then has a, an impact on investors' portfolios. And certainly, I think you see this year, uh, but also I think, you know, this is the development on what's happened in maybe in the last few years, uh, that investors really want to shape their portfolios and align them for that future transition, uh, and uh, you know, from a from a, a financial performance perspective this year, yeah, you know, I think those strategies have really uh, played out and been given credibility. Nobody knows quite what the future holds, but certainly, if you were to look at the landscape as it is today, then you'd have very good reason to think that this was the direction of travel. And I think a lot of investors are really kind of investing on that basis that there's great momentum in that trajectory and that that is really kind of the pathway to be on. And it's not only from an environmental perspective, it's really, you know, also now I think, you know, having that that sort of financial justification and looking at the returns and, and what's happening within, within particular sectors and then aligning uh, the asset mix uh, in, in that direction. So, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that it's really all sort of starting to, to play out in, in the right direction and to complement, again, that regulatory piece and the sort of the government and, and country level uh, objectives around around achieving a, a net zero um, uh, carbon future. So yeah, I think all of these things come together. I we, think that's how I put it. We've seen obviously this year a lot of uh, focus on technology. Uh, many technologies mm-hmm. have done extremely well, been able to capitalize on, on COVID-19. My question to you now is, okay, most of these companies have claimed to be very good on the E part, but on the S part, there's some real question marks around the types of employment contracts that they have, the way they treat their employees and so forth, and also some issues around governance, particularly as some of these stocks don't have equal voting rights. Um, they don't even have independent boards all the time. Uh, curious around how do we now address some of the challenges that may come up with some of these tech companies that have been driving the market for a long way and have really uh, driven the performance of a lot of portfolios and a lot of these ESG portfolios too. Sure. No, you're absolutely right, Alex. And I mean, when I said before that, um, you know, a lot of the companies that are that are becoming more heavily weighted in uh, sort of in sustainable sustainable investment portfolios, 
uh, you know, they may do very well on the engage on the environmental piece, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other issues that investors need to be aware of and to engage on. And certainly, this, some of the social issues that you've just mentioned around uh, employee relations, around maybe consumer responsibility, in terms of some of the newer risks that are coming through. And here, you might think of you know cybersecurity and and, and privacy. Uh, laws and, and so on. I mean, the, you know, these are going to be other issues that that uh, are going to be more relevant to some of those sectors uh, that they might have been to, to others. So I, I think that you, I think the point that you're making really is 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 around that kind of holistic approach to ESG and not assuming that a company, uh, you know, performs well as it were through an ESG lens simply because it's not in a high carbon uh, uh, um, sector. So. Um, you know, the one thing that we haven't mentioned in this discussion so far, of course, is stewardship. So it's really incumbent on investors to maintain that dialogue with companies. And I think also going back to the piece about uh, beneficiaries and about the broader stakeholder group, um, you know, this is you, it, this is really sort of, I, I think, around having the traction with those groups, uh, but also the reputational element that is incumbent in, in some of these activities around sort of uh, relationships with the with the broader stakeholder base. So, you know, I, I think that that sort of confluence of the, the dialogue with investors uh, together with the, uh, um, you know, what we're seeing maybe in the media about some of these, uh, some of these uh, environmental, some of these social risks, um, you know, I think the, the, the combination of the two is probably uh, the, you know, how these companies are going to sort of shape, uh, shape their approach going forward. And I think you also have to remember that some of these sectors are, are still developing um, and they're relatively new. So we're seeing, you know, regulation uh, becoming more of a question as well. Now on the governance piece, and again, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm in Asia and sort of on the, on the, the doorstep to, to China and to some of the Asia, other Asian economies, um, you know, and particularly with those tech companies, uh, we have seen some questions over uh, share, uh, shareholdings and, and, and governance uh, issues. Again, it's, it really goes back to, to continuing to have a dialogue with, um, with the management and, and with the board. And I think for shareholders to continuing on the governance side to raise those issues, there's been so much visibility, I think, on the social and the environmental piece this year that it's very important to remember that uh, the governance is a key driver um, uh, value and has been has been demonstrated to be such. So I think it's really being mindful that uh, you know all of these issues really kind of come together. You mentioned stewardship a few times, and and you also mentioned quite a few times the need for dialogue. There are you know hundreds, if not thousands, of asset management companies. Likewise, asset owners and consultants all talking to these companies at the same time. Curious to get your thoughts on how we can actually be a little bit more communal in, in the way that these discussions can happen. How can we maybe help these companies? Because I can imagine it'd be a very difficult job for a lot of these companies to take so many requests all the time with very different metrics, very different mm. taxonomies, different regulations in different parts of the world. It, it seems to be a huge challenge now for listed organizations. Right. I think that's right. I mean, another thing that we've seen in the development of sustainable investing this year is the consolidation of some of these frameworks, as well as convergence around some of the key ones. So uh, TCFD is, I think, really interesting because it has that universal um, acceptance and buy-in from the regulators, from stock exchanges in terms of the way they're developing their, their listing requirements and, and the disclosure rules for, for, for corporates but also, I think, from the investor base. So I think, 
you know, as, as we see sort of uh, more of a convergence towards global frameworks, I think that's going to be very helpful for companies. We've seen it already to some degree around SASB and around GRI as becoming very much the accepted frameworks. And of course, we've seen SASB and the Integrated Reporting Initiative uh, announced pretty recently that they're going to, uh, to join forces. So, you know, interestingly, I, I think that this is something that's going to become um, I would say more standardized over time. We've certainly seen appetite for standardized reporting metrics so that you have that ability to compare uh, what companies are doing and also I think on a more quantitative level. Um, now in terms of investor initiatives, again, I think something that's very encouraging is the, is the sort of uh, the global uh, support for initiatives like Climate Action 100 plus. So, you know, seeing uh, that convergence piece around the stewardship um, uh, frameworks that are becoming very important to the dialogue with companies, plus the, the reporting and, and disclosure uh, frameworks and, and standards. You know, I think it's still very early days and there's a lot of development work to be done, but certainly things are moving in the right direction. And if you think also of the, many of the discussions that are, are being had this year with, with regulators uh, and, and with standard setters and policymakers, there is, I think, an, a growing appetite for more of a global framework and an understanding that investors and companies operate within a global landscape and that it's very important for investors uh, as well as for corporates to have a much more consistent approach. I mean, many of these issues, uh, you know, they're, they're global perhaps with, with more of a regional spin on them. But I, I do see that there's uh, greater awareness and appreciation of the need for uh, a level of alignment in terms of frameworks, but also that investors are much more impactful when they join forces uh, and that they can achieve so much more through that corporate dialogue piece if there's an agreement on what the outcomes should look like. So final question, um, we've seen some movement in um well, the NASDAQ obviously saying that they're looking to delist companies if they don't uh, diversify their boards. Curious to get your views around the role maybe of some of the the boards, the, you know, the stock exchanges and, and their role and what they can play in terms of making some change here. Sure. Well, I thought that announcement by or that proposal by NASDAQ was extremely ambitious. I mean, how realistic that is, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And again, you know, I'm, I'm in Asia. The level of sort of um, diversity on boards dif differs drastically uh, here. Uh, and what's really interesting for me in, in Hong Kong, actually, and something to mention, is that uh, I think about 50% of fund managers in Hong Kong are, are women, but there's only about 13% on of, of women on, on company boards. So, you know, there's a real kind of shift around what needs to happen uh, in different parts of the globe. You know, in the UK now, I think I think people are asking why it's only 30% and not not 50%. So, you know, it's really hard to generalize uh, with this one. But certainly, um, I think diversity as a concept has been much more uh, prevalent uh, in terms of its 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 place in the conversation this year. And that can only really be a good thing. I mean, you know, we we need to have increased diversity and increased opportunities for different, uh, different sections of the, of the population. So, um, you know, it, it's a really interesting uh, concept, but going back to the NASDAQ question, how workable it is uh, remains to be seen. But certainly, uh, you know, globally, we've seen some really good moves towards encouraging diversity, uh, but there are areas where that really remains to be, 
to remains to play out. And of course, it's not just about gender, is that I mean, it, it, diversity is a much broader concept than that. Okay. So I think that's the piece that's become very interesting this year. So one thing that we didn't, you didn't touch on there was the issue around the role of stock exchanges. Is there any, anything specifically that they can do to try and help maybe some of the movements in sustainability in ESG? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, thanks for coming back to that question. So there's a couple of things to say. I mean, one is that FTSE Russell is owned by a stock exchange. We're owned by the London Stock Exchange Group. So that's that's a question that I would say is, is very close to what we do. So uh, in terms of sort of shifting the landscape and, and encouraging certainly better dis- disclosure from companies, uh, exchanges have been extremely instrumental or can be very instrumental in that piece. But we've also been very clear on the need to encourage better financing for some of the environmental uh, solutions around creating markets for green bonds, for example, for transition bonds, and really looking into those segments and highlighting the companies that are providing the the solutions for a low-carbon economy. We introduced the green economy mark on the London Stock Exchange last year, and that's received a lot of of, uh, very good feedback uh, for recognizing companies that are providing, uh, providing those solutions and services. But we also work very closely with stock exchanges um, in our, through partnerships across the globe. Uh, and, and I have really seen stock exchanges wanting to do a lot of work this year. And again, I'm, I'm going to you know, cite the Asian example you know, with, with Hong Kong introducing uh, Complier, exchange, Complier Explain um, requirements for some quite uh, granular uh, ESG uh, disclosures and, and the same also happening I think in in Malaysia and 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 in Singapore and probably in in due course. So you know there there is a shift in that direction. And I think stock exchanges do uh, do understand the role that they can play uh, in terms of promoting a better ecosystem for sustainable investing. The other point that I would mention is that you know within the London Stock Exchange Group we are. Uh, under the auspices of the sustainable stock exchanges uh, run by the the UN, uh, convening a a working group, which we're co-chairing with the Johannesburg Stock Exchange um, to to come up with a model guidance for implementing TCFD into disclosure uh, requirements for listed companies. So going back to the question that you mentioned on, uh, uh, you know, working together with different stakeholders, I think this is a really good example of how uh, how stock exchanges can do that and also can help to shift shift the needle in terms of the pieces that fall under their their jurisdiction and and that would be primarily I think around disclosure and identifying companies that are doing well on ESG. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Helena. Uh, it's been a fantastic conversation. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.